learn, inspire, create, innovate, achieve beyond what you can imagine, turn your dreams into reality. Join us at Physics.io, where creativity and science converge. Have you ever considered what powers your laptop, your phone? How come you have to switch out the batteries in your remote control, but you can just recharge the batteries in your phone by plugging it in? The answer is simple. Rechargeable batteries like lithium-ion batteries. Today, we will discuss the subject of batteries with an expert in the field, the Energizer Bunny. Hello, how's it going? Very excited to be here. To begin, can you explain what a battery is made up of and what makes rechargeable batteries like rechargeable lithium-ion batteries different? Absolutely. A basic battery is broken up into three parts. There are two electrode terminals, the anode and the cathode, on either end of the battery. And in the middle, there is an electrolyte separator. What happens when a normal battery is connected to a circuit is there is a chemical reaction inside the battery, which creates ions that flow from one terminal to the other and out into the circuit, providing the electrical current that powers the device. As we all know, if you put batteries into a flashlight, eventually they will run out of power and you'll have to replace them. So what about the batteries in our phones, our computers? Why don't we have to switch batteries in those things? Well, that's where rechargeable lithium ion batteries come into play. You see, lithium ion batteries do the same thing. When in use, a chemical reaction occurs and lithium ions move from the negative terminal to the positive terminal. And the electrons do the same thing, but they flow through your device, giving it power. What is different with lithium ion batteries is when they are low on power, you can charge them. When you charge your device, the lithium ions stored in the positive terminal flow back into the negative terminal. Basically, the battery absorbs the power it just spent and then can be used again. It's a back and forth process. But as great as these batteries are, you have to admit there are some limitations. Well, there are, but I can't think of anything that could replace them. Not so fast. New battery technologies are multiplying like bunnies. Ha ha ha, very funny. What do you mean? For example, in many lithium-ion batteries, a vital ingredient is an element called cobalt. Cobalt is very rare and very expensive, and as the tech industry grows, more and more devices are built, so we need more batteries and, in turn, more cobalt. The fear is the demand for cobalt may outstrip the supply, which could have a serious global impact on technology. So what can we do? Fortunately, there was a recent study in advanced materials called High Nickel NMA, a cobalt-free alternative to NMC and NCA cathodes for lithium-ion batteries that examined this problem. Researchers created new cobalt-free lithium batteries using elements like nickel, aluminum, and manganese. They then compared them to the cobalt-containing batteries and discovered that this new cobalt-free lithium battery generally performed as good or better than the cobalt-containing batteries largely in use right now. This is major news because this new type of cobalt-free lithium battery could lead to a future where technology is not only more sustainable, but affordable. Okay, so there's one alternative. Not that exciting if you ask me. Wait, because that's not all. Solid-state battery cells may soon replace lithium-ion batteries. Batteries today use liquid electrolyte materials between the anodes and the cathodes. This is not very space-efficient and has potential safety issues. Scientists found that the use of highly conductive and chemically stable novel materials enabled the creation of all solid state battery cells with solid electrolytes that boast far better performance than today's common lithium ion battery. 
This study also showed that this all solid state battery system is able to achieve higher specific energy, which is the energy density of the battery, as well as high specific power, which is how much energy can be released in a unit of time than that of commonplace lithium ion batteries. In addition to performance advantages, all solid state batteries will be safer and more space efficient as there is less dead space inside the battery. Also, zinc ion batteries are cheaper, more abundant, and more environmentally safe than lithium batteries. Unfortunately, zinc ion simply isn't as power dense as lithium, so running cars off it would be a difficult task. Zinc ion is more suitable for grids or telecommunication. Wow, I didn't know any of that. I understand better than anyone that improving battery technology is crucial if humanity is going to make the transition to 100% renewable energy. We are using these batteries more and more in our phones, computers, and even smart cars like the ones sold by Tesla. We need to be moving to more sustainable energy sources because the demand for the batteries that power our technology is only growing. Very true. I hope you have learned something about batteries and the new advancements in this field after listening to this segment. Be sure to follow our Instagram page at All About Batteries to stay updated on battery technology breakthroughs happening throughout the world. And don't forget to sign up for my motivational seminars coming out on Spotify and iTunes. Hey world, let's keep on hopping. See ya. Scotty, beat me up. Hey, everyone, and uh, welcome to the first episode of the Beam Me Up podcast. Uh, my name is Charles, and I'm joined here by Braden and Kevin. And we're here to talk about teleportation. Now, my first question for you guys is, what is your favorite piece of media that involves teleportation, and how does teleportation work in that piece of media? Hmm. Damn, that's a good question, bro. I think for me, I'd have to say my favorite piece of media is maybe Umbrella Academy. In that show, um, there's this character called Number 5, right? And basically, his ability is that he's able to instantaneously teleport anywhere in space but also anywhere in time uh, yeah my, my character my pick is not as cool as five but uh rick from rick and morty he, he can't instantaneously teleport but he uses a portal gun which we can either say opens up a wormhole or uses some elements of quantum mechanics well i think unfortunately my my teleportation media is star trek and its teleportation method seems uh, less cool than either of yours so in Star Trek, they kind of just like they they dematerialize you, turn you into some kind of like energy, and then they rematerialize you somewhere else, like uh, on a ship or like a planet or something. But you know, like thinking about these types of teleportation, like what do you guys think is on the horizon for like scientific applications for realistic teleportation, like in your future? Well, recently I read an article about uh, quantum entanglement, and so what they're doing is you're using computer processors to actually manipulate a state of uh, quantum information uh, called qubits, and so they're able to either um, they're able to manipulate the state in order to send a new state or teleport that state to a receiver. So they're able to use this in uh, quantum computing. That's really uh, ironic because I actually just read a paper about quantum teleportation. Um, and I just want to mention that as cool as they are, um, they're actually sort of still in their infancy. And what I mean by that is um, we haven't been able to really teleport at a, like a quote unquote teleport at a really long uh, distance. The longest we've been able so far, or like one of the longest distances, um, was uh, 1,400 kilometers. And the way they did it was actually super interesting. Basically what they did was they entangled two photons, right? And they put it on a rocket and then they shoot it 1,400 kilometers up in space. And then what they do now is they laser it back down to Earth um, miles and miles, miles apart. And then, crazily enough, um, they observe and they find that through all of that uh, movement, they were still entangled. 
and um yeah it, it's crazy stuff honestly that that you can do with quantum teleportation yeah this kind of reminds me of an article i read on a somewhat unrelated topic about 3d bioprinting where nowadays instead of just 3d printing like you know plastic things we can print out using like a template like organic materials like organs or like pieces of bone and stuff like that and so it kind of seems like in the future we might be able to you know turn the human body into like a full template and then like reassemble that so if we can send you know data over vast distances using like quantum entanglement then reassemble them in like a you know a bioprinter then uh, the kind of star trek style like teleportation doesn't seem too far off yeah true, true, true. and it's important that you pointed out that the information is the thing being sent it's not the actual particles that are transferring so that begs the question is that really you on the other end or is that just a clone or a replication of you and that leads me to question you, you guys question uh would you actually teleport Ooh, that's a good one um honestly bro i think i'd do it um you know i do it just because it's like what other opportunity in life will you have to be able to tell you know what i mean because it's like you might as well just do it i don't know i mean i guess that's the kind of the whole like continuous consciousness line of thought like if you if you just kind of wake up and you're teleported somewhere else somewhere else is that still you for me like i'm, I'm thinking you know that's just clone me i i want to stay this, this normal me in my normal place and just you know not get de-atomized and then you know reassembled somewhere else yeah i, I don't know i feel like i don't know that 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 really is uh an ethical question um you know that we could try and answer but i feel like honestly we should uh leave that up uh to interpretation you know? you know to you to you guys the listeners as always thank you so much for listening into our conversation about teleportation and um let us know what you would like to hear next um, by emailing us at beamyuppodcast at gmail.com make sure to teleport your fingers on over to the like button and subscribe to our youtube channel at beamyuppodcast Yes, sir. Make sure to follow us on the socials. Good morning, science. Beam me up, podcasting. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see all of you in the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Guys, that brings us to a closing. Science research doesn't always pay, so today we'd like to give a quick word to the sponsor of our podcast, Raid Shady Saga. Magic, mayhem, Raid Shady Saga has got it all. Teleportation isn't possible right now, so why not make your morning commute just a little bit more tolerable with Raid Shady Saga? Thanks, Raid Shady Saga. Welcome to Against the Clock, Ahead of Your Time. I'm Alicia. I'm Sophia. And I'm Colby. And we'll be discussing gravitational time dilation in the context of the 2014 hit film, Interstellar. In Interstellar, the main characters attempt to survey different planets in another galaxy to find a habitable environment for humans to occupy. In the clip I'm about to show you, they reach their first planet called Miller, which is in close proximity to Gargantua, a giant black hole. Before they disembark their spaceship to explore, one character, Dr. Romilly, makes a comment. Every hour we spend on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. Sophia, could you explain to us why this time difference is occurring? Certainly. Gravitational time dilation is the phenomenon responsible for the slowing of time that Dr. Romilly alludes to. Gravitational time dilation refers to the slowing of time near massive objects. In other words, if I was near the edge of a black hole, like the crew of Interstellar, and you were floating freely somewhere else in space, time would be ticking much slower for me than for you. So technically, they're time traveling forward relative to Earth, right? Technically, yes, that's exactly what this means. They're literally time traveling seven years into the future for every hour that they spend on the planet. Colby, would this type of time travel ever be possible for us? Theoretically, yes, 
But one of the limitations we currently face in accessing gravitational time dilation as a means of time travel to the future is the fact that the nearest supermassive black hole, known as Sagittarius A star, is at the center of our Milky Way galaxy, approximately 26,000 light years away. So it would take us 26,000 years traveling at light speed, about 670 million miles per hour, to reach Sagittarius A star. Sagittarius A-star's immense distance from us is certainly a barrier to accessing gravitational time dilation. However, in the past few decades, a potential method for faster-than-light travel that we may be able to use to travel to Sagittarius A-star has emerged in theoretical physics research. This idea was introduced in a 1994 paper by Miguel Alcubierre, which he labeled as a warp drive mechanism. Through discussion of theoretical physics and mathematics, Alcubierre obtained the result that from the perspective of an outside observer, faster than light travel can actually be achieved due to the intense curvature and particular shaping of space-time. Essentially, if there's a bubble of warping space-time that stretches the space behind a moving object and contracts it in front of it, that object traveling in this theoretical bubble will actually be propelled at an arbitrarily large speed. It's basically being pushed from behind and the distance it's traveling forward through is continually being shortened. From the perspective of an observer outside this bubble of space, the object inside will actually be traveling potentially much larger than the speed of light. Sophia, could you explain some of the restrictions of the warp drive method? Sure. We wouldn't be doing the science justice if we didn't point out that the paper acknowledges the warp drive mechanism potentially violates some of our current theories of physics. Specifically, that this type of space-time warping would require the existence of something called exotic matter, a type of matter with unusual properties we do not yet understand. However, it is still important to discuss, and this potential type of space travel has other implications. It would allow for exploration of our universe on a much broader scale than currently achievable. This is really interesting to discuss alongside gravitational time dilation. If we are able to time travel to the future via time dilation, we could theoretically bring humans to a future of interstellar and possibly intergalactic human civilization. So does this mean that the plot of interstellar could one day become reality? As far as the gravitational time dilation aspect of the movie goes, theoretically, yes. And with the prospect of the warp drive propulsion mechanism, arriving in a future where human civilization exists in places other than Earth is also theoretically possible. Thank you, Colby. That's all for this episode. Don't forget to check out one of the sponsors of today's podcast and book your tickets now to join the gravitational time travel expedition. Make history today. And if you're not a risk taker, then join our time travel themed book club, Behind the Times, for a small fee. Connect with fellow time travel enthusiasts around the world through your common love for time travel literature. We hope to see you next time on Against the Clock, Ahead of Your Time. Has COVID-19 trapped you in your house for too long? Or maybe you're just jealous of those kids who got to go to Narnia. The solution is simple. Go to a parallel universe. In this podcast, Multiverse Travel Agency is pleased to be announcing our newest travel destination available in the near or far future. There are many examples of parallel universes we can see in popular culture other than Narnia, such as the Netflix show Stranger Things or the Marvel and DC franchises. However, 
These parallel universes are not just a figment of our imagination. They have a rich history, possibly even dating back to the Big Bang. For those of you who don't know, the Big Bang Theory is not just a TV show, but a popular belief of the origin of our own universe. It states that everything as we know it started as a single point, which then exploded, expanding into what we consider the universe today. Based on research done by scientists J.L. Alonzo and J.M. Carmona, the Big Bang could have created not just our universe, but a whole multiverse of different universes surrounding us. Each parallel universe is different from ours in some way. For example, maybe in one universe, you didn't take that job offer in the big city. Or maybe the COVID-19 pandemic never happened. There are infinite possibilities for your next great vacation. I know, this sounds crazy. Are there really other universes out there? Luckily, we've brought in an expert on parallel universes, Dr. Carver, to talk more about how all of this might be possible. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm sure our listeners at home are excited at the prospect of journeying to another universe, but they may also be a little nervous. After all, how do they know these parallel universes are legitimate? To start, the Big Bang tells us how the universe evolved after the Bang, but gives us no insight into what would have powered the Bang itself. This was explained by the inflationary cosmology theory. What is that? This theory identified a special kind of fuel that would naturally generate an outward rush of space based on something called a quantum field. The fuel proves to be so efficient that it's virtually impossible to use it all up. If it's impossible to use up the source of energy that started the Big Bang, wouldn't that mean that the creation of our universe is likely not a one-time event? Precisely. The inflationary theory could possibly fuel not just our Big Bang, but countless other Big Bangs, each giving rise to its own separate universes. Physicist Brian Greene mentioned this idea in his TED Talk as one of the claims to proof of a multiverse, enhanced with another theory called string theory. Okay, I think that's a bit too technical for me. Do you have any less science-y evidence? Right. Another paper, Fine-Tuning the Multiverse, focuses on the non-scientific reasoning about the multiverse. It primarily discusses the idea of the Earth and our universe seeming almost fine-tuned, like it was meant to support life. I mean, if the sun was slightly further away from Earth, we would have never survived its colder surface temperature. That's true, but where do parallel universes come into this? In other universes, there might be other Earths that didn't get so lucky and can't support life. And while it may seem impossible that our universe's Earth had exactly the right conditions to support life, if there are an infinite number of other Earths with an infinite number of variations... It seems totally plausible that a handful of universes had those fine-tuned conditions to support life on Earth. Okay, so now that we've heard theories on the possibility of the multiverse, how would we be able to travel to these different universes? There's a theory of the structure of the multiverse that was presented in the paper Black Holes in the Multiverse. It's a pretty math-heavy read, but the main point is that the different universes that we've been talking about are each contained in inflating regions, with wormholes connecting each region. Oh, like balloons that are constantly inflating, and instead of being tied off at one end, they're connected in the bottom to another balloon with a tube, and another tube at the top that's connected to a different balloon, and so on. Yes, the tubes would be wormholes and the balloons are universes. So we just need to travel through these wormholes? According to that theory, yes. However, travel through wormholes is a bit more complicated than it seems. In theory, there are shortcut tunnels that would connect two points in space-time. Unfortunately, with our current knowledge of physics, they would be extremely difficult to create. Even if we managed this, it would require an amount of exotic matter that the laws of physics don't permit. But I was told by our team that it may be possible. That's right, it may. I did say that this was according to our current view of physics, which relies on our universe having four dimensions. Yeah, what about that movie Interstellar? They can travel through wormholes because there's a fifth dimension in their world. 
true. That fifth dimension would fix the exotic matter problem. Actually, the string theory that we mentioned earlier relies on the possibility of there actually being multiple dimensions, which would put us in an interstellar-like situation. However, string theory, the multiverse, wormholes, different dimensions, these are all just theories. As of now, we don't know if other universes even exist, or if we would be able to travel to them. Uh, yeah, as of now, but we should have faith that our scientists will make the discoveries needed to confirm these theories and make this travel possible. Perhaps, but that probably won't happen in our lifetime. Okay, thank you, Dr. Carver. That's all the time we have for you today. Now, for our listeners, be sure to donate to our research fund to help our travel agency make Journey Through the Multiverse possible. You can also sign up for our mailing list to receive updates on how our research is going. You may not actually be able to travel to parallel universes, but we like to stay hopeful. This trip is not refundable. We hold no liability if you are unable to come back and find yourself stuck in that universe where the dinosaurs never died and also end up guns. Side effects may include fatigue, constipation, skin rash, or dermatitis, diarrhea, dizziness, drowsiness, dry mouth, headache, insomnia, streets of the time, sweat, gratification, and or eventual death. Multiverse Travel Agency. Life begins at the end of your universe. Black Holes, Sci-Fi's plot device, reality sport. Sponsored by Jimmy John's and GoPro. Today, three Marvel collectors will be discussing what we know, or more so what we don't know about Black Holes. Movies like Interstellar, Man of Steel, Star Trek, and even movies targeted to children, like Make Up in Mind, Mr. Peabody, and Sherman have repurposed this astrophysical phenomenon to become a sign of impending doom. You have a marble lying on the floor, but this marble is really, really heavy, and it's so heavy that this really small marble is the same amount of heavy as your ever sons, all packed into this one tiny marble. This marble would work through our floor, your basement, the street, and probably the river. Now, imagine that this marble is on space-time, what the planets, the sun, and everything in the universe rests on. When things like the Earth and the Sun rest on space-time, these things make an indent the same way pulling down your shirt and poking it with your finger will. If you were to poke your shirt really, really hard, it would eventually rip through. And this is essentially what this really heavy marble would do in space-time. It would make a hole in the space-time, or this fabric of space-time would The fabric would just keep stretching and stretching infinitely to accommodate for the heavy marble. If a sun or another star were to get too old and didn't have enough room to keep it from falling in on itself, it becomes the size of a marble with all the same amount of stuff that the sun had. And so it's this really heavy marble that causes a rip in space-time, making a black hole. If things were to get close enough, they don't actually get sucked in as many of our movies may suggest. They fall and all the light falls into it. So what you're seeing from a black hole, it's the absence of light. Um, and so you're seeing the black hole shadow. The point where light cannot escape is called the event horizon, um, which is a little further past the black hole shadow, but once you fall in, you fall towards the singularity. But as our movie characters try to escape the seemingly unescapable fate of the black hole, what would happen if you were to fall into the black hole, past the edge, past the black hole shadow, through the event horizon, and finally falling towards the singularity? Well, my friends will have answers for you right after the sponsor message from Jimmy Jones. It's freak fast. Have you sandwiched still a bit in the singularity of your own private black hole in five minutes? Or have your money refunded? Jimmy Jones, freak fast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second section. So what might happen after one crosses the event horizon and goes inside of the black hole? The knowledge of black holes and their relationship are typically understood as that past the event horizon is a prolonged passage to singularity, or spaghettification as you may call it. However, Leonardo Modesto in 2004 begins to diverge from this accepted belief. In disappearance of the black hole singularity and quantum gravity, he begs us the question whether a singularity event occurs within the black hole at all. Quite interesting, isn't it? In the study, Modesto proves that Schwarzschild's understanding does not actually diverge into the quantum theory when algebraed. He uses modern-day quantization and applies it to the well-known Schwarzschild solution from the 20th century. This minor discovery changes our entire understanding of what can possibly occur inside the black hole. Enter the black hole, be spaghettified, nothingness potentially. Now, we are at a standstill in our understanding of black holes. If singularity can disappear, then space-time can extend beyond the concept of singularity. It seems we are left with more questions than we had to begin with. And the mystery remains, constantly wavering in the minds of physicists all over the world. And me too. Our limited knowledge on black holes can actually be our downfall. We can bask in both our creativity and science to fully question what truly is on the other side of singularity and what exists beyond the event horizon. Maybe after singularity, there's some entrance to the fourth dimension where time and space are not as they appear to us. Perhaps it's an interstellar moment, like a film by Christopher Nolan, I'm sure many people have seen it, 
where here we can actually quote unquote control time. Or maybe it's some kind of time warp or wormhole where we can enter at one point in the universe and exit at another. We truly won't ever know until some brave soul enters a black hole with a GoPro. Speaking of GoPros in a black hole, let's take the time to thank our sponsor, GoPro. Go, be a hero. GoPros are the newest generation of carrying the adventure to you, allowing true daredevils to bring their adrenaline rush to the screen and to viewers. Take the convenient cameras with you anywhere, while you surf, grocery shop, or even watch at a concert, or perhaps, maybe, brief singularity in a black hole. Be a hero, be a daredevil, as we all can be. These ideas are more complicated than they seem. In real life, do our accepted ideas about black holes hold? These were the exact questions Stephen Hawking sought to answer with his famous body of works on black holes. One such work is his 1974 report, Black Hole Explosions. In this very dense report, Hawking proposed the theory that black holes slowly evaporate over time. The consequences of this idea are enormous. Our understanding of black holes and beyond that, the laws of physics hinge upon the very principles Hawking's ideas violate. Hawking drew time to illustrate that the force of gravity at a black hole's event horizon has enough strength to cause its energy to slowly leak into the universe. In other words, the leaking energy makes it so that the black hole itself evaporates, losing mass over time. So, to an observer, the black hole's energy would be reduced and the energy of the universe would increase, and due to the direct relationship between mass and energy, it would look as though the black hole itself would lose mass and evaporate over time. But in short, Hawking discovered that black holes radiate information out very slowly over time, causing the body's mass to evaporate. It's also important to point out that all of this occurs at an extremely slow rate, and humankind will likely never witness a black hole completely evaporate. But nevertheless, perhaps the most important aspect of Hawking's idea are its wider implications. And to me, the most interesting avenue for exploration is the famous black hole information paradox. Everything in this world is made up of a distinct combination of particles and properties, something physicists call quantum information. And one of the most vital laws of Newtonian physics holds that all quantum information is conserved, even if an object changes form or state. But we have also established that once something gets too close to a black hole's event horizon, there is no return. The object's quantum information gets destroyed. If Hawking is right, and black holes really do shed their mass, sending particles away from the event horizon, it appears as if the evaporating particles are not related to the information a black hole must encode according to conservation laws, meaning a black hole and all of its quantum information can be erased. And this raises an even larger question, to which there are no definitive answers. If the information disappears, then where does it go? These questions completely destabilize our most basic scientific paradigms, and without the answers, some of our most given scientific truths can be challenged and perhaps someday unraveled. And this truth brings us back to Earth. What do we do if our principles cannot hold? Have you ever had that experience where, as you're blowing out your birthday candles, you just wish you weren't turning another year older? In other words, do you perhaps not want to feel as old as you do? In 2015, NASA performed a study called Twins in Space that may be relevant to you if you've ever encountered any of these thoughts. Researchers sent identical twin Scott Kelly on a one-year mission on the International Space Station while his brother Mark stayed on Earth using him as a control for the over 300 biological samples to be collected over the next year. Assessing differences in gene expression, microbiomes, cognitive functions, vascular systems, and more, the researchers hypothesized that the stresses of spaceflight would produce psychological and physiological manifestations in Scott associated with aging. Analyzing the twins' robust samples, researchers found that, indeed, Scott showed signs of aging that Mark did not. Changes in ocular functions, telomeres length, or caps on chromosomes that are a strong function of aging, and more revealed that time spent in space mimicked the aging processes we experience on Earth, just faster. Or, as Scott would assert, So I'm like five, six now, my brother's still three foot six. While Scott's differences, both real and alleged, return to normal after a few days on Earth, they have launched a rich research tradition into understanding human adaptability in space, 
while simultaneously addressing the curious role we, as humans, might be able to have in, fingers crossed, slowing the process of aging down. Before we get ahead of ourselves thinking about anti-aging, perhaps it's worthwhile to consult some of the scientific literature on the physiological effects of space travel on humans. Here to talk about the science are researchers Isabel and Daisy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Could each of you give us a rundown of your research? What are some of the significant findings that we should be made aware of? Happy to. So in 2019, we published a report with the Nature Publisher Group titled Anti-Aging Effects of Long-Term Space Missions Estimated by Heart Rate Variability. To understand these effects, we measured seven astronauts' heart rate variability, which serves as an indicator of longevity in clinically healthy people. We determined that there were statistically significant increases in heart rate variability levels on magnetically disturbed days, suggesting anti-aging or longevity effects in these seven astronauts. So, in terms of these astronauts' health, they seem to exhibit signs consistent with better long-term executive function in adults, indicating more prolonged survival. Wow. What about you, Isabel? In 2013, my colleagues and I looked into the effects of microgravity on the International Space Station on human muscles. We found that because gravity on the ISS is only 89% of gravity on Earth, long-term stays can result in the worsening of muscle function on the level of fibers and enzymes, especially in calf muscles. There's good news, though. Astronauts who did sufficient treadmill exercise saw less of a decrease in muscle functioning than those who didn't. We'd now like to focus in on the physics of aging due to space travel. Einstein's special relativity tells us that time runs slower for moving objects because light moves at constant speeds in contrast to the inconsistent speeds of and distances between moving objects. At normal human speed, these inconsistencies of time are unnoticeable, but as you approach the speed of light, they become clear. Take, for example, the ISS, which travels at nearly 28,000 kilometers per hour relative to observers on Earth. While this is nowhere near the speed of light and has a minuscule impact, that impact can be calculated. A year on Earth translates to about 106 milliseconds less than a year on the ISS. The high speed of space travel makes time move slower, albeit by the most minute amounts, causing astronauts to age more slowly than their counterparts back on Earth, from the perspective of Earth-bound observers. We've discussed how space travel affects astronauts in terms of aging and other physiological effects, but we shouldn't ignore the various psychological effects of being in space. In general, astronauts experience stress as a result of unfamiliar environments, heavy workloads, and an inability to communicate directly with individuals outside of their mission. At the same time that astronauts aren't able to see friends and family back home, they spend nearly every waking hour with other crew members. After over a year of social distancing and being unable to hang out with people other than those you live with, we should all be able to empathize with this feeling of isolation. Before taking Einstein's theory of special relativity as justification for your anti-aging space mission, consider some of the effects of space travel that we've shared with you. Though time might move slower, your body feels intense physiological and psychological effects, some of which mimic a sped-up aging process, as we saw in astronaut Scott Kelly compared to his twin, Mark. So if you're hoping to retain your youthful years for as long as possible, it might just be better to stick to your anti-aging creams after all. But use Neutrogena Anti-Wrinkle Intensive for just four weeks, and its clinically proven retinol formula will smooth even the deepest wrinkles. So choose. Beautiful in the jar or in the mirror. Neutrogena, recommended most by dermatologists. Hello, 
listeners, and welcome to our new section titled Galileo, Squirrels, and Gravity, the Genesis of the Equivalence Principle. Today, you get to tune into conversations between ancient and modern scientists to answer some of science's most interesting questions. I'm your host, Charlie Huang, and today's question is, how can squirrels survive any fall? Today, we have two very special guests joining us to discuss the answer to this question and the science behind it with a discussion of the Equivalence Principle. Ancient scientist Mr. Galileo Galilei and modern scientist Ms. Victoria Fu. We'll start out with Mr. Galileo. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, you may be wondering why I speak English fluently with an American accent. And the reason is that I'm such a brilliant scientist that I was able to master the language in one day. That's so impressive. Uh, just a little other bit about you. You've won an astounding zero Nobel prizes, which is just as money as I've won. So we're kind of on some equal footing here, but I think you've taught, you've thought about gravity a lot more than I have still. So can you tell us a little bit about your idea of the equivalence principle? Yeah, well, first off, I thought my agent told you not to bring up the Nobel Prize thing, but we'll get to that later. Um, so the equivalence principle, which, um, you know, was my idea, is basically the notion that two objects of equal size and different weights falling from the same height will hit the ground at the same time. So um, basically, it's the notion that weight doesn't matter when objects are falling. It's, um, it's more about gravity and drag. Fascinating. I've nearly never thought about gravity like that before, just falling things. Uh, and I think you've taught us a lot about this. Could you tell us how you came up with this idea and how you're able to test it as well? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Thanks very much, uh, Charlie. So um, the way that I thought of this was I went up to the biggest structure I could find, which uh, what you guys call the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Back in my day, we just called it the Tower of Pisa. So I went up to the tower and I took uh, two objects of equal size and equal shape, and they were made of different things. Um, so they weighed different amounts. And I simply just, you know, I dropped them off the tower at the same time. And I had my buddy downstairs. He recorded uh, which objects, you know, hit first. I thought they would hit at the same time. And, you know, not to my surprise, to everyone else's surprise, they uh, they hit at exactly the same time, which kind of confirmed my idea that objects of different weights that were falling would fall at the same rate. If you guys want to test the equivalence principle today, you're more than free to do so. All you need to do is get two balls of different weights. May I suggest maybe a baseball and a lacrosse ball? Go to uh, a really high place, drop them off that high place and have your friend on the ground recording which object hits first. And by doing that, you can test the equivalence principle today. Give us a call and let us know your results at 1-800-GRAVITY. I just have a question for you though. You know, there are any, there are any modern day science developments that support my theory. Let's turn over to modern scientist Victoria Fu for this. Yes, modern studies have proven that the equivalence principle holds true for extremely small particles as well as in space. Uh, we see this in these two studies, uh, one of which is called Microscope Mission, first results of a space test of the equivalence principle, which was conducted by Stanford University, as well as the atom inferiometric test of the equivalence principle at the 10 to the negative 12th level, which I know is a very long name, but very easy to understand, actually. So uh, um, for the first study, Researchers at Stanford University used a laser to launch isotopes, which are atoms with different masses, upward, and then used cameras to measure how quickly they fall. They found that different isotopes fell with the same acceleration, which shows that your equivalence principle is true at the atomic level. It also holds true outside of planet Earth. Uh, for the second study, um, the researchers found that launching two capsules of identical size but different masses into space required no significant difference in force required, meaning that the equivalence principle also works in space. It's great that there's research backing up your thought experiment, as this is an example of converging evidence and how that benefits uh, the scientific community. Thanks very much, Mr. Galileo and Ms. Fu. Galileo's agent would like us to inform you that he is available for birthday parties, weddings, bar mitzvahs, quinceaneras, and more. 
Guaranteed you'll drop the mic at any event with an acceleration of 9.8 meters per second squared, or you get your money back. Call 1-800-GRAVITY today or 1-800-472-8489. And Ms. Fu is also available for scientific conferences, if that's up your alley. Anyways, as our gracious guest Galileo explained, the equivalence principle means that objects of different masses will fall at the same rate, provided that the drag is constant. In the case of the falling squirrel, for instance, we, which has a tremendous amount of drag due to its low mass and relatively large surface area, the squirrel can only fall so fast. And research shows that the maximum terminal velocity that the squirrel can reach is about 14 meters per second, which is the equivalent velocity of a person falling from about only three meters tall. No matter how squirrels, how high squirrels fall from, they will not be falling very fast. And so for this reason, squirrels can just survive the fall. And again, a very special thank you to our two brilliant and gravitationally attractive guests, Mr. Galileo and Ms. Fu. That's all we have for today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in to An Existential Genesis. We'll see you next week. So long. Wow, I can't believe you made it this far. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a way to support all of you budding scientists, the Columbia Frillside Department is offering an exclusive trip. The first three winners to contact us at 1-800, the last seven digits of pi, will win an all-expense paid vacation to the Bahamas. Good luck! And stay safe.